Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. BetOnline Sportsbook has you covered all throughout July with all the odds, props, promos, and parlays for baseball, WNBA, MMA, boxing, and more. Use our promo code BLEAVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast, live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is a fantabulous Thursday, July 13th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count. But we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you may be listening. We've got a great show coming at you today. The news broke in the last week that Greg Popovich is going to be the new highest paid head coach in the NBA. And that Greg Popovich is going to be paid until he is 81 years old to coach the San Antonio Spurs. Five-year extension, $16 million a year. Pop is going to be around for Victor Wembanyama's one song of a career. Him and Wembanyama are under contract for seven years now because it's going to be hard for Wembanyama to turn down the 250 or by the time he signs it, $300 million max extension that San Antonio will offer him even if he plays less games than Zion Williamson played with the Pelicans. Because remember, the Pelicans gave Zion Williamson that max after less than 100 games. Victor could play less than that in three years with the Spurs, and they will give him the full max extension. When Banyama is going to be under contract for seven years, Popovich is theoretically going to be under contract for seven years. And I wanted to talk about Greg Popovich and this extension within the context of Popovich's career and where he was about five years ago. And obviously, we've written the book on Greg Popovich. We wrote an actual book. It's called The Spurs Dynasty. You can listen wherever you get podcasts to the audiobook of the first three chapters. And the third chapter of this book is Coach Pop. We did a deep dive into the history of Coach Pop, his journey from growing up in small town Indiana, uh, being this quintessential 20th century success story where he is a child of immigrants from Southern Europe and he 
ends up using the military and sport to achieve economic mobility, and he goes to the Air Force Academy and then gets a job at Division Three Pomona Pitzer and then makes his way to the NBA as a general manager and meeting having some good fortune along the way. And Popovich is this incredible story that was interesting to research, and hearing that he's going to stay as the head coach of the San Antonio Spurs is an interesting choice because... Popovich said back in 2016 he would retire when Tim Duncan retired. And he had been saying that for years. He is nothing more than Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan is the reason that he is the player, the coach that he is today. And obviously deflecting the praise from himself, which now David Robinson, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, and Manu Ginobili are going to be enshrining Popovich into the Hall of Fame this coming September, and Popovich, the Hall of Fame greatest coach in the history of the NBA, who has now been with the San Antonio Spurs organization for 29 consecutive seasons, Greg Popovich is going to be in a position where he's going to stay for seven years. And four years ago, or five years ago, it wasn't really a possibility because for those who don't know the story, Greg Popovich's wife died during the 2018 playoffs, which as we write about in our book, this is at the time where Kawhi Leonard was leaving the Spurs and getting ready to demand a trade. It was Manu Ginobili's final season with the Spurs. It would end up being Tony Parker's final two games as a member of the San Antonio Spurs. And Greg Popovich couldn't be there for what was the ceremonial, for all intents and purposes, end of the Spurs dynasty. The Spurs dynasty ended with that 2018 playoff run where there was no Kawhi Leonard, no Tony Parker anymore, no Manu Ginobili after the season he was retiring, no Tim Duncan, Danny Green was going to get traded in the Kawhi deal. This was, for all intents and purposes, the end of the Spurs dynasty. And oh, by the way, they've never won a playoff series since that 2018 season. And what we talked about in the book is Popovich was getting ready to retire and experienced a level of grief and all the emotional complexities that come with losing a life partner that I wouldn't be able to articulate within a book because I don't know Greg Popovich. Writing a nonfiction book about this leader figure of the greatest dynasty in the history of pro sports, this CEO type figure that has survived three different ownership regimes with the San Antonio Spurs, I didn't know how he was coping with losing a life partner at the time that he did. And in the time since, Greg Popovich has gone on to coach the Olympic team to a gold medal for the USA. He's gone on to coach the Spurs through a rebuild for five seasons, despite the fact that all of his assistant coaches of five years ago have left for other jobs. The general manager who had been a partner with him for 16 years, R.C. Buford, left that position to run the business operations side of the Spurs. He's now the CEO of the Spurs, no longer in basketball operations. Despite the fact that R.C. Buford is gone, all of his former assistant coaches are gone. All of the players who came to embody the best years of the Spurs no longer play for the team. And he has an entirely new coaching staff with an entirely new set of players, a new general manager, and a new ownership group. And Greg Popovich remains the CEO figure of the Spurs. And Greg Popovich 
through the years, has continued to have an interest in coaching. He's been excited about the possibility of coaching young guys and developing them and not being worried about record for one of the first times in his career as they've gone through the rebuild. And now he gets to be the coach who coaches Victor Wembanyama for the next, presumably, seven years, well into his 70s, in what will be this year his 30th season as a member of the San Antonio Spurs organization. It's such a unique story and one that has developed interesting layers in even just the year or really the seven months since we published the book on the Spurs dynasty and in the 12 months since we first started this project last year with the documentary series, The Fall of the Spurs Dynasty, which by the way, you can still listen to that if you want to go back. I would recommend the book is a more complex layout of the Spurs dynasty, but the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty documentary we did also has a story on Greg Popovich. Uh, it was chapter three of the documentary series. That's available with links in the description of this episode. But like ever since I started reading about this story, it's been interesting to watch Popovich continue. And the way that I ended the book, I mean, spoiler alert for people who haven't read it, but the way that I ended the book was talking about how it was almost as if with the Spurs dynasty gone, you know, all the players that came to embody the Spurs way are gone. Duncan Parker, Ginobili, Bruce Bowen, even guys like Tiago Splitter, even the deep guys in the bench, all of them are gone. All of the former assistant coaches of Popovich are off having their own success, whether it's Steve Kerr or Mike Budenholzer or Monty Williams or Mike Brown or any, you know, 15 coaches you can find in the NBA with connection to the Spurs organization. All of them have gone on to other places. Even people like Chip England, the famous shooting coach for the Spurs, is now in Oklahoma City. Becky Hammond is now the head coach of the Las Vegas Aces. Everyone who came to embody the Spurs left as the team started going into a teardown. And all that remains left is Popovich. And the way that I felt best encapsulated the end of the book was that it was if Popovich was handed the keys to the dynasty, the keys to the gym, and was told to lock up whenever he was done. And when he was busy crafting his skill and going through this work, they found Victor Wembanyama, who represents hope, which is a thing that realistically the organization hasn't had for years. I mean, the Spurs thought they were going to be good when it was DeMar DeRozan and DeJounte Murray and LaMarcus Aldridge in 2019 and 2020. But really, for the last five years, there hasn't really been a whole lot of hope for San Antonio. That's why you've seen so many people leave the organization and not look back, move on to greener pastures, because greener pastures exist all throughout the NBA and beyond the NBA when we're talking about David Robinson or Tim Duncan or Manu Ginobili, who haven't gotten back into the NBA circles. I mean, Tim Duncan was an assistant coach for a year with the Spurs, but that was four years ago now, and he decided that wasn't what he wanted to do. It's as if Popovich was handed the keys to the dynasty and told to lock up the gym when he was done. And now that he has a level of hope, he's decided this is what he wants to do with the end of his life. Greg Popovich identifies himself as a coach. And if you read the book that we did, he very much identifies himself with this notion of being a coach. And so today on the show, I felt we could do a deep dive into Greg Popovich and converse about him. But then I remembered we already did that. And there's nothing I'm going to be able to say beyond this additional part about Victor Wembanyama and him signing an extension and him wanting to be a coach well into his 70s and potentially his 80s with the San Antonio Spurs. There is 
no story of Greg Popovich I could tell better than the dozens of hours of research and writing that went into producing the chapter of the book that we wrote on Greg Popovich. And so today, I want to present you the first half of chapter three of our book, which is titled Coach Pop. The chapter is Coach Pop. The book is The Spurs Dynasty, a historical account of the most successful dynasty in the history of North American pro sports. Greg Popovich and his story is incredibly unique, and if you want to understand the self-identifying as a coach, look no further than Greg Popovich's background and origin story, which I have the distinct pleasure of being able to share with you because we wanted to create an audiobook experience for our debut as a published author. And so let's talk about Greg Popovich today, and there's no better way to continue the conversation about Greg Popovich than with chapter three of our book, The Spurs Dynasty. Chapter 3. Coach Pop. Greg Popovich was born on January 28, 1949, in a small town called East Chicago, Illinois. Popovich's parents, Raymond and Catherine, lived in the former country of Yugoslavia, Raymond from the Kingdom of Serbia and Catherine from Croatia, before immigrating to the United States. At age 11, Popovich and his mother moved to another small town called Merrillville, Indiana, following his parents' divorce. In 1970, the first year the U.S. Census recorded data for Merrillville, the population of the town was approximately 16,000 people in total. Against the backdrop of a small town in Indiana, Greg Popovich began his journey to becoming the winningest head coach in NBA history. Merrillville is approximately 40 miles outside the city of Chicago, the home of Mike Krzyzewski, the winningest coach in the history of college basketball. Born two years and 40 miles apart from Popovich, Krzyzewski was born to Polish immigrants who immigrated after invasions by the German and Italian militaries in 1941. After high school, Popovich enrolled at the Air Force Academy, while Krzyzewski enrolled at the Armed Forces Academy. Coach K played basketball at Army under famous basketball coach Bobby Knight, then later coached as an assistant with Knight at Indiana University. After a 31-1 season in 1975, Coach Krzyzewski was hired as Army head coach at just 28 years old. In 1980, Coach K was hired as the head coach at Duke University, where he would go on to win five national championships, advance to 13 Final Fours, and set a college basketball record with 1,202 wins during 42 years as Duke coach. Discussing Krzyzewski is important for understanding the story of Popovich, because both of these men's stories follow these quintessential 20th century American success stories. Popovich and Krzyzewski were born to immigrants from Eastern Europe, at the time the only region in the world in which migrants were being accepted by the United States government. As first-generation Americans, Popovich and Krzyzewski were afforded new opportunities within the backdrop of massive post-war economic expansion. Under the presidencies of Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Dwight D. Eisenhower, the United States government invested billions of dollars into creating economic programs for low-income Americans. The United States government created social programs to make food, housing, jobs, 
education and health care affordable, creating a thriving, educated middle class that would stimulate the economy following both the Great Depression and World War II. In addition to creating social programs to lift people out of poverty, the United States also dramatically increased their spending on the military and infrastructure. In, in 1944, the GI Bill was signed into law providing free education to people who served. In 1954, the United States government established the Air Forces Academy, a third military academy in addition to the Navy and Army. In the 1950s, spending on military defense had grown to be so expansive that, in his 1961 farewell address, President Eisenhower warned about the dangers of the growing economy of war in the United States. Social programs of the 1950s were incredibly effective in helping lift Americans out of poverty, as well as leading to U.S. economic expansion. U.S. GDP increased by 745 percent from 1945 to 1975, and the middle class was larger relative to the percentage of wealth than at any time period in U.S. history. However, these social programs also failed because of the explicit and implicit exclusion of racial minorities, women, and immigrants from receiving benefits, widening the United States inequity gap. It is with this historical context that both Greg Popovich and Mike Krzyzewski begin their journeys towards becoming basketball's greatest coaches. Both Popovich and Krzyzewski used sport and the military to achieve economic and social mobility and were afforded the privilege to do so as first-generation American white men, growing up in the backdrop of growing economic opportunity in 1940s and 1950s America. Greg Popovich played for the Air Force basketball team from 1966 until 1970, being named the team's captain during his senior season. Popovich's head coach was a man named Bob Spear, and the dean of his school at the time was a man named Robert McDermott. McDermott had a daughter named Betsy, and Betsy's best friend from age eight onward was named Aaron Conboy. Aaron's father, Jim Conboy, was the head athletic trainer at Air Force from the school's first season in 1955 until his death in 1998. Betsy McDermott introduced Aaron Conboy and Greg Popovich to each other while Greg was attending Air Force and Aaron at nearby Colorado State in Fort Collins. Popovich ended up graduating in 1970 with a degree in Soviet studies, and in exchange for his free education, he had five years of military service in the Air Force after his graduation. Popovich began touring with the Air Force in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and served as captain on the 1972 Armed Forces team. In 2012, Popovich recalled his time playing for the Armed Forces team. Quote, I got to travel a little bit and see a bit of the world. The year we won it was 1972. We won the Armed Forces Tournament that year, and the All-Armed Forces team went to the AAU Championships in Kentucky and won that. So I was able to go to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union when it was a little bit different. <laughs> I still remember, wherever I walked, every time I turned around, there was a guy following me no matter where I went, 
to my hotel room, to the dining hall, trying to walk the streets. It was pretty interesting. End quote. After spending three years touring Eastern Europe, Popovich was requested back to the Air Force Academy by head coach Hank Egan. Egan had been an assistant basketball coach for Popovich's final three seasons at Air Force and was promoted to succeed Speer in 1971. Egan arranged for Popovich to serve his final two years as active duty military in Colorado Springs and work part-time as an assistant basketball coach. The arrangement worked out so that Popovich could begin a coaching career, finish his service, and be back together with his longtime partner, Aaron Conboy. Aaron and Greg Popovich married in 1976 after Greg completed his active duty service in the Air Force. In 1977, the couple welcomed their first child, a son named Mickey Popovich. In 1979, they welcomed their second child, Jill Popovich. In the 1970s, Pomona College in East Los Angeles was one of the most selective schools in the United States for higher education. As a Division III basketball school, Pomona fielded athletic teams described as quote-unquote glorified intramural players playing college basketball on the side of study sessions and biology homework. In 1979, Pomona College Dean Bob Volkel was looking to hire a new head coach for their newly formed Pomona Pitzer basketball team. The school had recently combined its athletic department with a nearby liberal arts college to save resources. He reached out to an Air Force assistant coach named Reggie Minton, who ended up declining the job. According to the San Antonio Express News, Minton recommended another Air Force coach to Volkel. Having spent the last six years in Colorado, Greg, Aaron, and their newborn family moved out to Claremont, California, about an hour east of Los Angeles, where Greg would become the head coach of the Pomona Pitzer Sagehens. The population of Claremont at the time was 31,000 people, and the two colleges of Pomona and Pitzer combined equaled the size of a large high school. Jordan Ritter Kahn of Grantland detailed Popovich's first head coaching job in 2015. Quote, The Sage Hens had no size, no quickness, no shooting, no toughness, no basketball talent of any kind. They had future lawyers and academics who liked to be coached by Socratic method. All season they had struggled to field enough players for a proper five-on-five scrimmage. Some players had quit. Many others missed practice for chemistry labs, study sessions, or student government meetings. On these days, they would practice four-on-four. Popovich was not a savant slumming it up at a small school. He was an improving coach and a horrible dresser, already with a taste for fine wine, but without the salary to buy much of it. On the court, he tried some weird shit. In the huddle, he fell into imitations of Bobby Knight, but he cared deeply about the people around him and even the most mundane tasks of his job. And while he fumbled, fumed, and experimented his way through nearly a decade on basketball's fringe, 
he remained in search of the relationships and experiences that would help him find his identity as a coach. End quote. Popovich's first team at Pomona Pitzer went 2-22, and finishing dead last in the Southern California Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. Popovich didn't have the players nor an identity as a coach. Popovich's first grand idea was to start recruiting players to play for his team, something Pomona had never done before. As Ritter Kahn's 2015 Grantland story describes, before Popovich, quote, coaches put up flyers and wannabes around uh, and wannabes arrived at the gym for a couple days of drills. The least awful among them earned the rights to call themselves college basketball players, end quote. Popovich's recruiting helped net the Sagehens a stable basketball team. And once the players committed, Coach Pop could start building his program into a competitive team. Ritter Khan's Grantland story details the recruiting during Popovich's first year at Pomona Pitzer. Quote, Popovich wrote and sent letters to almost every high school in the western third of the United States. He explained who he was and what he wanted, kids who first could play basketball and second had a prayer of getting into one of his two schools. It was the most inefficient process imaginable, says Charles Katsafishis, a former Popovich assistant and the current head coach at Pomona Pitzer. After they paper-bombed the region with solicitations, they put together a list of several hundred names, kids who, who some strange high school coach in some strange town thought might be smart enough to attend Pomona or Pitzer and good enough to help Popovich's team. The man now famous for his disdain of superfluous interaction, the coach who has turned the humiliation of lazy reporters into his own sport, loved, loved recruiting those who knew him say. His letters were gorgeous, written in black ink and cursive. He addressed players' basketball goals and digressed into their intellectual interests, confident that only Pomona Pitzer could reward both. He called at night, often on Sundays, and he asked about their classes and families. After exhausting those topics, he tried to convince them to join his team. This being Division Three, he could offer no scholarships, but he sold the campus, the faculty, the weather, and a chance to play. End quote. Here's the win-loss record of Popovich's first six seasons at Pomona Pitzer. 1980, 2-22. 1981-10-15. 1982-9-17. 1983-12-11. 1984, 9 and 17. 1985-11-14. Under Popovich, Pomona and Pitzer went from a glorified intramural team to a semi-competitive program. He spent six years at the Air Force acquiring skills as an assistant, another six learning skills for being a leader and working the meticulous attention to detail that came with a leader's responsibility. As Popovich would describe in 2012, this job brought him more joy in coaching, more joy in coaching more than anything else. Quote, I was fat, dumb, and happy as a Division III coach, and I would have done that the rest of my life. Becoming a pro coach was something that I never thought of. 
end quote. The 1986 season, his seventh at Pomona Pitzer and 13th as a coach, would be the year that began to change the course of Popovich's coaching career. Pomona Pitzer went 16-12, and including an 8-2 and record in the SCIAC, securing Pomona their first-ever conference championship and first appearance in the 32-team NCAA Division III playoffs. The team lost in the first round to the eventual third-place Nebraska Wesleyan team, yet it was still the greatest season in school history. After the 1986 season, Coach Pop took a one-year sabbatical at Pomona Pitzer to work as a volunteer assistant coach under Kansas basketball coach Larry Brown. Up to this point, Brown had been the coach of the Denver Nuggets in the 1970s, winning ABA Coach of the Year in 1973, 75, and 1976. He moved to college as the head coach at UCLA, leading them to second place in the 1980 NCAA Final Four, and worked back in the NBA with the New Jersey Nets. Here's how Popovich described his year working under Larry Brown to the Los Angeles Times in 1988. Quote, We got to know each other and I learned a lot about basketball. The thing I learned most was the way they approached the game at the different levels. It's the same game at any level. It's just the way they approach it that's different. End quote. Popovich returned to Pomona Pitzer in 1988, going 7-19 and 4-6 and in conference play. After winning the 1988 National Championship, Larry Brown left Kansas in 1988 to become the head coach of the San Antonio Spurs. That same year, the NCAA placed a one-year tournament ban and three years probation on the Kansas program based on recruiting violations. Popovich wanted to ask Larry Brown if he could follow him to San Antonio as an assistant coach. But as a Division III head coach, he was afraid because, quote, he thought Larry Brown would laugh in his face, end quote. Brown had grown to like Popovich and his coaching style, so when Popovich asked him for a job, Brown offered one to him. Popovich was making the leap from Division Three head coach to an assistant in the NBA. During the first years of the Spurs dynasty, Larry Brown's coaching staff consisted of Popovich, future Spurs general manager R.C. Buford, and future NBA head coach Alvin Gentry. After four years, Larry Brown's infamous temper and aggressive coaching style rubbed then-Spurs governor Red McCombs the wrong way, and Brown was fired in the middle of the 1992 season. Popovich was retained as an assistant coach when general manager Bob Bass took over the team, and the Spurs fell into a brief period of mismanagement around David Robinson, as we discussed in Chapter 1. Popovich ended up leaving San Antonio to become an assistant with Hall of Fame coach Don Nelson in Golden State following the 1992 season. In 1993, the San Antonio Spurs played their first season inside the newly constructed Alamo Dome, a football stadium-sized arena in downtown. In 1994, with the team firmly established in the San Antonio market, the Spurs would be sold by McCombs to a group of local business people in the San Antonio area 
for the purchase price of $85 million. The lead investor of this group would be a man named Robert McDermott. The same Robert McDermott who had been the dean of Greg Popovich's school at the Air Force in the 1960s. The same Robert McDermott whose daughter's lifelong best friend was Aaron Popovich. One heck of a coincidence, huh? McDermott was appointed by President Eisenhower as the first permanent professor at the Air Force Academy, then became the first permanent dean of the faculty in 1959. Over two decades, McDermott would become known as the father of modern military education, before leaving the military sector to become the CEO of USAA Insurance. When McDermott took the position in 1968, USAA served primarily as a military insurer and was the 16th largest auto insurer and 15th largest homeowners insurer. In McDermott's 25 years as CEO, USAA grew into the 5th largest auto insurer and 4th largest homeowners insurer. And the company's headquarters? They were based in San Antonio, Texas. McDermott earned enough money as CEO of USAA to be the lead investor for San Antonio's local professional basketball team, back when it cost a mere $85 million to buy a basketball team, compared to the multi-billion dollar purchase prices of NBA teams today. As we discussed in Chapter 1, the Spurs had gone through five different coaches in the three years prior to McDermott's purchase of the team, and had failed to advance beyond the second round of the playoffs. McDermott turned to his family friend, at the time still working with Nelson and the Warriors, as the San Antonio Spurs general manager, despite the fact Popovich had never worked in an NBA front office before. Popovich had experience with recruiting, and the lessons he learned transforming Pomona Pitzer would be important to carry with him into a job he was underqualified for. As we discussed in Chapter 1 and 2, Popovich hi- Popovich's hire of Bob Hill and acquisitions of Avery Johnson, Chuck Person, and Doc Rivers helped provide a stable foundation the Spurs hadn't seen in years. David Robinson won the 1995 NBA MVP, and the Spurs came within two games of the 1995 NBA Finals. They then won 59 games in 1996, Robinson got hurt, Bob Hill was fired, Popovich named himself the team's head coach, and they inexplicably won the lottery to select Tim Duncan. Then they acquired Will Perdue, Mario Ellie, and Steve Kerr, turned the offense over to Duncan, and won the 1999 NBA Finals. During the first three years of Popovich's coaching, he was a favorite among players and a pariah among fans. Bob Hill won 121 games over his first two seasons as Spurs coach, and his firing felt very premature. What what angered fans and pundits alike was that Popovich appointed himself head coach, making the unspoken claim, I can do better than this guy, which, even if he could, it wasn't going to be popular. And yet, doing the unpopular right thing was one of the trademarks of the culture that Popovich, Buford, and the Spurs were setting up during the late 1990s. They originally ran only four or five plays on offense, 
and once those were mastered, they practiced a sixth. Popovich was learning on the fly how best to operate as an NBA coach. As Pop describes in 2016, having Tim Duncan was the reason he was allowed as he was allowed as much time to experiment and adapt as a coach. Quote, I would not be standing here if it were not for Tim Duncan. I'd be in the Bud League, the Budweiser League, someplace in America, fat and still trying to play basketball or coach basketball. End quote. As the 20th century gave way to the 21st century, the world of coaching was reaching a turning point. In a decades-long transformation of coaching, leadership, and motivation, For most of the 20th century, the predominant style of coaching sports was based on the lessons of military training. Militaristic principles actually built the foundation for organized sports, dating back to the 1880s where college football was invented as a way to teach the lessons of war to Ivy League men during a time without a major war. Coaching and teaching were jobs that former sergeants and military officials would take after retiring from service. Organized sports became a way to instill the principles and lessons of the military in peacetime, which would better serve the military once, the, once a war began. The famed Bobby Knight, who led Indiana to the 1976 NCAA National Championship, was famously a dictatorial figure with his players. He was known for yelling at players and referees, cursing into live microphones, and one time famously throwing a chair across the floor. Knight was notoriously harsh on his players, as if he were a general in the army, and sports were treated with the same life-or-death energy as a war. He coached at Army for 10 years before he moved to Indiana University. One of his lead assistants was Mike Krzyzewski, who would coach Army himself from 1975 until 1980. As Ritter Kahn's 2019 Grantland story details, Popovich defaulted towards the militaristic models of coaching when he was struggling to find his identity as a coach. Quote, Greg Popovich was at turns orny and sweet, prone to fits of shouting and still searching for his own voice. Quote, he wanted to be Bobby Knight says former player Dan Dargan. Back then, everybody wanted to be Bobby Knight. End quote. In 1973, the United States abolished the draft system, making all enrollment in the military on a voluntary basis. In 1975, the Vietnam War ended, and the United States would not engage in a major ground war until the invasion of Iraq in the Gulf War of 1990. As anti-war sentiments came to define the cultural landscape of those 15 years, coaching began to evolve from a militaristic style to an academic style of coaching. The best coaches were people who had almost all gone to higher education, and they had very occasionally served in war. By the time the 1990s rolled around, many of the players being coach had lived in peacetime for nearly their entire lives, born during the anti-war and civil rights movements of the late 1960s and 1970s. The models of success for coaching looked less like former military generals and more like Pat Riley and Phil Jackson, both former NBA players who had gone to college, played on champion basketball teams, then immediately went into coaching after their playing careers. 
Between 1981 and 2002, teams coached by Riley and Jackson won 13 of the 21 NBA championships. In 1994 and 1995, the Houston Rockets won two championships coached by Rudy Tomjanovich, who attended the University of Michigan in the 1960s and played 11 years in the NBA before moving into coaching. Coaching in the 21st century would come to look like Steve Kerr, who was playing with Popovich from 1998 to 2003 on the Spurs and regards Popovich as his coaching mentor. Kerr's father, Malcolm, was the president of the American University of Beirut, Lebanon. He was assassinated in Beirut when Kerr was 18 years old, one year away from playing basketball at the University of Arizona. Kerr played 15 years in the NBA, worked as general manager of the Phoenix Suns, and as a broadcaster for Turner Sports. Kerr was hired in 2014 as head coach of the Golden State Warriors and won six Western Conference titles and four NBA championships in his first eight seasons. The academic style of coaching was replacing the militaristic style of coaching. Military principles were becoming less effective forms of motivation because what was being taught did not reflect the current state of an ever-changing world. Basketball was not the same as war, and coaches who were taught to view the game as war would have to adapt their principles accordingly. Those who didn't adjust would succumb to the same fate that befell Popovich's mentors. Larry Brown would be one of the coaches most synonymous with the militaristic style of coaching in the NBA. While Brown had Hall of Fame success as a coach, advancing to the ABA, NBA, and college championship games with five different teams, Brown was someone who got fired from jobs quickly because of player mutinies, fallouts with front offices, or a combination of factors. Larry Brown coached 11 different teams in 37 years, never working in the same place for longer than five seasons, frequently leaving with hard feelings on both sides. Bobby Knight was the winningest coach of the 1970s and 1980s in college basketball. After Indiana's 1987 championship, Knight only made the Sweet 16 round three times, the Elite Eight once, and never made a Final Four again. In 2000, Bobby Knight was fired at Indiana University after a video was released of Knight choking former player Neil Reed during an Indiana practice. His firing became a national reckoning of coaching, since Knight had been the coach who symbolized the success of the early to mid-20th century militaristic coaching model. This is where Popovich was tasked with adapting the systems he grew up in to build something sustainable in San Antonio. This has been the first part of Chapter 3 from our debut book, The Spurs Dynasty. If you are interested in more on Greg Popovich or Tim Duncan or Manu Ginobili or any of the story around the Spurs dynasty, you can purchase the book available wherever you get books. There's links in the description of this episode, uh, it, uh, both to the 
documentary series that we did last summer. Uh, chapter three is all on Greg Popovich. You, you can find some more information in addition to what was written here in the book. And if you want to purchase the book, copy is available on every platform that you get books. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for stopping into the Take It Easy podcast. We've got episodes three days a week. Monday, Wednesday, Thursday is our typical recording schedule. This week we had a Tuesday episode for the MLB Home Run Derby. So if you're interested, subscribe, download, five-star review. All of those are helpful in supporting our dreams. And you can check out previous episodes of the show. Just scroll through it and see if you find something you like. If something piques your interest, give it a listen. You just might enjoy it. Thanks for stopping in, everybody, and take it easy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.